Good morning, church. So good to see all of you here this morning. I'm Corey. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and just want to welcome all of you uh, to third this morning. Uh, we are. This is the time in the service where we return to the Word of God. Uh, this is something that we do every week. That is the vital staple of our service. <laughs> Sorry, that was really bad. But Lex, yours that was so good. I really appreciated it. Um, I like that kind of humor. Anyway. If you're, if you're visiting today, if you haven't been with us at all this summer or just a couple times, um, this summer we have been going through the entire book of James, and we've been looking at it verse by verse, section by section, and we've been asking the question, um, what is James teaching us about a faith that matters? A faith that matters. We've been hearing in different ways week by week that James' desire is that our faith is more than just a transaction, more than just a simple spiritual transaction of forgiveness with God. As important as that is, Christian faith is not just meeting the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. True faith, James says, is transformational faith. Faith that gets down into the soul and begins to change and impact every single part of your life. And over the last 12 weeks, uh, we've looked at all of these different aspects of practical life in which James says your faith should bring change. So faith matters in how you handle your suffering. Uh, Faith matters in how you relate to people of different classes and cultures. Faith matters in how you handle your speech and how you tell the truth and how you talk about other people. Faith matters in how you handle interpersonal conflict. Faith matters in how you deal with your anger. Faith matters in how you handle your money and your wealth. Faith matters in how you treat the poor. Faith matters in everything, in all parts of life. And so here in chapter five, James brings all of this teaching together and he culminates it here in the final section of the book. So that's what we're gonna read today and finish this series after 12 weeks. So let's read God's word together. James chapter five, verses 13 through 20 you find that on page 10 in your worship guide. So let's hear God's word. Let's listen as the Spirit speaks to us. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't figured it out yet, in this last section, James turns to the subject of prayer. Now, you might feel a little bit down about this. It might feel like a little bit of a downer given all of the great, practical, non-churchy, non-religious subjects that James has addressed. And yet here at the end, he addresses this sort of mundane subject of prayer. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized just, of course, this makes sense that he would do this. Remember that James is out to give us a faith that matters. A faith that matters not just for Sundays, but for every day. A faith that matters not just for special religious occasions, but a faith that matters for 
all occasions, a faith that is transformational, that gets into every part of your life. And what he's been saying in different ways throughout this book is that the one key to a transformational faith is a living relationship with God who loves you. You were made, each of you, each of you were made for a living relationship with the triune God. And the more you know this God, and the more you love this God, and the more you walk with this God, and the more that you learn to commune with this God, the more you will find that your faith becomes transformational, that it works out into every part of your life. You know, I am, have a very close relationship with a woman named Sarah, who is my wife, and I would say that my relationship with Sarah is not just one part of my life but that it is actually central to my life and the key relationship through which I navigate the world. So I don't just do my relationship with Sarah on Tuesdays. I work out of that relationship in everything I do, in the decisions that I make, in the way that I handle my money, in the way that we handle conflict. And so same with God. The key to a transformational faith is a living, dynamic relationship with God that becomes so vital and central to your life that that relationship begins to touch and challenge every part of your life. So if it's true that a key sign of a transformational faith is being rooted in a relationship with God, then the medium of that relationship with God is prayer. Prayer is the way that we connect to and experience and commune with the living God. Without prayer, there is no relationship. So let me put it this way, okay? Let's Summarize what I'm saying here. That the true faith is transformational. Transformation happens through relationship. And the medium of relationship is prayer. You want to be changed? You want to change the world? Learn how to pray, James says. So we're going to learn a little bit about prayer from Dr. James. He's a good teacher. In fact, second century tradition posits that James' nickname was Camel Knees. Anybody here have that nickname, Camel Knees? The reason he had that nickname is because he apparently was on his knees so often praying and pleading for God's people that he developed these thick, ugly calluses on his knees like camels, Camel Knees. So let's learn from Camel Knees here uh, about prayer and some practical implications of prayer in our own lives. Since we're talking about prayer, it starts with P. Let's talk about three P's of prayer, okay? So we're gonna look at the place of prayer, the posture of prayer, and the power of prayer. Okay, the place, the posture, and the power of prayer. Are you all with me, fam? You out there? Okay, so first, let's look at the place of prayer. What is the place of prayer in your life? James says, everywhere, every place, every time and every occasion. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? Let them pray. In other words, there is never a time when it is not good to pray. In hard times, in happy times, in good times, in bad times, when things are up and things are down, whether you're crying or singing or complaining or yelling, we're invited to talk to God and engage with him about every single thing that is going on in our lives at all times and places. There is no situation in life where prayer is not relevant or right. Why? Because of where we started. This is about relationship, communion, conversation with God. Our entire lives and everything in it is meant to be lived out in relation to that God. I have a, um, an ID bracelet around my wrist that I wear all the time. Um, I mostly wear this because uh, it's got my name and my phone number and my wife's, my wife's phone number 
on it. And I often run and work out in the early morning outside when it's really dark. So this is, you know, in case something happened, my kids think it's really weird that I wear like a portent of my own death upon my wrist. Um, but, um, but, but what I really, and the reason I wear this all the time is because on the bottom of it, in Latin, it says Coram Deo, Coram Deo, which means before the face of God or in the presence of God. So it reminds me at all times, whether I'm in church or I'm in Target, whether I am talking to you or talking to my kids, whether I am working with my money or working on my lawn, that in all times I am doing so in the presence of God and at all places invited to commune with that God. And this is important because sometimes people think that prayer is for just religious times and religious places like church or church buildings on Sunday mornings or Bible studies or maybe occasionally before a meal. But listen, if prayer is about relationship, you can't just work on prayer in a few isolated parts of my life. That would be like telling my wife, Sarah, I only want to talk to her on Wednesdays and Fridays between 4 and 5 p.m. And she would say, that's not cool, right? And of course, set times are important. Sarah and I have set date nights. We have set times to go on walks. You know, any relationship worth its salt requires discipline, planning, and practice. And yet, our relationship is a constant in our life, infusing everything. And in the same way with God, set times of prayer are important. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the old school quiet time where you, you know, meet with God every morning to pray and study his word. And yet, if prayer is about relationship, then it's always more than those times. Prayer is an authentic interaction about whatever is going on in your life. Did you hear me, friends? Prayer is an authentic interaction with God about everything that's going on in your life. So you are overwhelmed with something at work? Talk to God about it. You don't know how to parent your kids? Talk to God about it. Super challenging marriage or relationship? Cry and plead with God about it. You walk outside like I did on Tuesday and see a big rainbow arching over the sky or you drink that first sip of beautiful coffee in the morning? Let your heart sing to God about it. Hear the praise of this grateful heart. You know, you're sitting in the drive-thru with the Chick-fil-A and the guy in front of you is taking way too long to make his order and he can't make up his mind and you're getting really frustrated and really mad. Speaking autobiographically, talk to God. Uh, talk to God about it. So listen, if you don't know how to pray, here's the thing. Begin where you are. That's the place for prayer. There is no situation in life, no place you encounter where prayer is not relevant or right because it's about relationship. That's the place for it. Okay, what about the posture for it? Similar to the first point, yet deeper, in the posture for prayer, you can write this down if you're taking notes, that the posture for prayer is honest humility. Honest humility. Or to put it another way, if the place of prayer is where you are at all times, the posture of prayer is who you are at all times. Your authentic, honest self brought before God. Have you ever heard uh, someone pray who has what I call the, the prayer voice? Have you ever heard anybody do that? You know, I had a friend who used to do this. He was a great guy. You don't know him. He's not in this church. Um, he's a great guy. I love this guy. Super real, authentic, friendly guy. But when he prays, it's like this flip gets switched and he starts talking to him. He's like, thou great and glorious God, we do beseech thee that thou would grant thy hedge of protection around us. And, and it's, you're just like, what happened, dude? Like, what happened to my friend? You know, like, what? Uh, have you ever heard anybody do that? Or you might do that? Or you might feel like when you pray, you have to use like some special, super important holy words, like, God, you're omniscient and omnipotent and omnivorous. And, you know, you pull out your thesaurus and, you know, you start figuring out what words to say. Friends, listen, listen. 
this is rubbish because what God wants, he doesn't want us to pretend like we're someone we're not. He wants us to not be different than we actually are or better than we really are. James says, no, come as you are. Bring your honest self. You're troubled? Hey, bring your troubled self to God. You're happy? Bring your happy self to God. You're weary, you're sick, you're anxious. You are totally immersed in sin? Bring that self to God. Because otherwise, it's fake. God wants you. He doesn't want some fake version of you. That's how a relationship happens. You know who knows this is true? Our children. Our little children, some of them are here. They know it's true because they don't dress themselves up or pretend or act better or different when they come to ask something of their parents. I, last week I was in Chattanooga with my younger sister visiting her and she has a little girl named Arelli. And Arelli and I were at the toy store and we were trying to find a birthday present for my daughter Anna, who's turning 12. And so we were in this toy store, and I said, um, Arely's five, and I said, Arely, what do you think we should get for Anna? And Arely stopped, and she thought about it, and she had this contemplative look on her face, and she said, well, what I really want is something for myself. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like, truth, sister. I mean, and that's actually what I was thinking. There were a lot of things that I wanted for myself in the toy store. Um, but she said it, and I would never say it, because why? I'm an adult. And adults pretend, adults put on masks, adults, adults try to mask who, what's really going on. And it's, yet, is it not surprising that Jesus says, when you pray, here's what you to do, behave like a child. He says, stop acting like adults. Stop putting on fronts and pretending to be better than you really are. No, come to him as you are with all of your issues and selfishness and wounds and fears and joys, concerns. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you who are put together who are upstanding people and have learned how to concentrate well in prayer. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, come to me, all you who are what? Weary, heavy laden, burdened, your honest self. Y'all, you have so many problems, you don't even know where to start. Your, your, your mind constantly wanders. You can't make it focus. You feel like you don't have what it takes to actually be the kind of Christian you're supposed to be. Jesus says, perfect. That's where you start. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what kids do. A friend of mine said, one of his people in his congregation said, asked him, you know, can you, I don't know how to pray. And the guy said, do you know how to yell? He said, yes. He said, then you know how to pray. Because God wants your true self. Where you are, as you are. But it goes deeper than that, too. Because something happens when we bring our true selves to God. We give God the opportunity to begin to work his change in us. We're going to talk in a second about how prayer can really change things. But listen to me, fam. Oftentimes what God is really trying to change is you. When we go to God and we bring our true, honest self to him, with our struggles and our sin and our fears, we give God the opportunity to begin to work his mighty change within us. This is why, right in the middle, it seems a little out of left field, doesn't it? He starts talking about confession of sin. Did you notice that? Verse 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. He closely links healing and the confession of sin. Why? Because God's ultimate mission, please listen to me here, God's ultimate mission is not to fix your problems, but is to heal your soul, to make you new. 
You can see in verse 19 and 20, don't really have time to talk about these verses, but that God's ultimate desire is for the whole soul of the sinner. God's ultimate mission is not to fix your problems, but to heal your soul. Therefore, God loves it. When we come to him with our true and honest, raw souls, with our weakness and fears, flaws and sin, a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. He loves it when we're honest with him. He loves it when we confess our sins to each other, James says, which sounds scary. You ever confess your sin to another person? Sounds really scary. But just like with God, when we share honestly with each other about our sin, we open the gates of healing. We need God. We need each other. You cannot beat sin alone. You cannot beat addiction alone. You cannot beat lust and fear and pride and greed alone. You cannot do these things alone. It begins with honest confession. Any good counselor will tell you that the only character flaws in your life that will destroy you are the ones that you refuse to admit. And that admission begins in the place of prayer where we humbly bring our honest selves, surrendering ourselves to God, letting him do the work of change to make us new. Let me just give you a little example about how this works because I just want to be a leader of this for you as your pastor. Uh, Wednesday night, my kids were down in North Carolina with my parents down in Asheville for a few days. Wednesday night, I drove halfway to Asheville to meet my dad in Burlington, North Carolina, picked up my kids, drove back. It was too late, late at night, driving back, 10, 30, 11 at night. And if you know me well, you will know that after nine o'clock, I basically turn into a werewolf. Um, you know, I'm really good at like masking my selfishness and self-centeredness throughout the day, but after nine o'clock, it's just like, I give up. <laughs> and um, I was exhausted. I was really tired. I was super annoyed and frustrated with my kids. Um, I was worried about some things that were stewing around in my mind. And I was angry because it was so late and I knew I had to wake up the next morning to get work done because I'm really behind in my work. And frankly, I just acted like a complete and total jerk to my family. Uh, I was mean to my kids, I was mean to my wife, uh, and I went to bed angry. The next morning, Thursday morning, I woke up, and I'm, you know, y'all, this is like two days ago. This is not like 20 years ago this happened to me. Now, I want to be clear, this is your pastor, okay? Thursday morning, I woke up, I decided, you know what? I went to my place of prayer. I said, you know what? I'm just going to be real and honest with God. And so I just started telling him how mad I was and how frustrated I was and how angry I was and how worried I was and how all this. And God took, received me. He received my honest self. The Father receives us by grace. But you know what? As he received me, he began to prompt me. And he began to say to me, and yeah, you know what? Also, you are a total jerk to your family. And, and you provoked your children. And you lost self-control over your emotion. Uh, and you gave in to your profound selfishness. And you need to repent. And so I did. And then when my family woke up, I confessed my sin to them. And they all said, oh yeah, we were expecting you to do that. <laughs> Big jerk. Um, and that's the power of prayer. That's how it works. Isn't that amazing? That in prayer, God invites us to share our honest, he receives us as we are. And yet he never leaves us as we are. He always has a vision for what we could be. And then he gently moves us in that direction as we humbly surrender ourselves before him. So that's the posture of prayer, is honest humility. Finally, the power of prayer. Prayer changes us, but that's not the only thing it changes. It changes, get this, the world, reality. That's a big theme of this section. You know, after being a pastor for a while now, I think that 
One of the reasons why people don't pray or stop praying is because you stop believing that prayer does anything. You believe that it doesn't change anything, right? Deep down, you don't really believe that praying will do anything at all. James is here to tell you that it isn't true. That prayer is powerful. He says in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That prayer can actually change reality. He gives a couple of examples. First, he gives the example of healing. He says that if someone is sick, you should call the elders of the church, that's like the leaders of the church, to pray over that person and anoint them with oil, which is a symbol in the Bible of God's spirit and presence. And he says, when you do that, it will make the sick person well. And I want you to know, friends, that our church, we actually believe this. We actually believe that God can affect change through prayer and through the laying on of hands of the elders. In fact, I've seen it happen. This is not to say that we don't believe in medicine and we don't believe that it's important that you give yourself to the fullest possible treatment that you can when you're facing a medical obstacle. But at the same time, we believe in the power of God to actually lay the healing power of Jesus upon a person. I've seen it happen just four years ago. In that room right there in the parlor, we gathered after this service with about 10 elders of our church and we laid our hands upon a young man named Jared Armistead who had metastatic cancer that was advanced and growing in his lungs and his pelvis. Some of you were there. We laid our hands on him. We anointed him with oil. We prayed mightily to God for his healing. And then he began a year of chemotherapy and radiation. And I will tell you that four years later, that young man is in college and he is cancer-free. Now, you may say, oh, you know, that would have happened whether we prayed or not. But I tell you what, I talked to his father yesterday. I called his father, Scott, yesterday. And his father is a physician. And I asked him, what does he attribute to the healing of his son? First words out of his mouth, the power of prayer. It actually happens, my friends. It changes reality. It heals body. It even changes the weather, James said. He says in verse 17, Elijah, who was a man just like us. He's not some super special prophet. He was, if you read the first and second Kings, you'll see Elijah was a jerk like me. You know, he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed that it would rain and it did. Prayer is so powerful. It can determine the weather. It can heal bodies. It can change circumstances. It can shift reality. It can change all things. Now, how do we make sense of this? There's great mysteries here, right? We're reformed people. We're Presbyterians, all right? We believe that God is sovereign and in charge of all things. He oversees all things and our prayers never manipulate God or rob him of control. Hear me on that. And yet, in God's goodness, he somehow allows the world to be shaped by human prayers. He lends to us in prayer, as Blaise Pascal said, the dignity of causality. He somehow, in his sovereignty, maintains control of history and yet gives humanity agency to shape history through prayer. A mystery we cannot understand, but it's true. And so James says, pray boldly, pray expectantly. Jesus said, pray with audacity, pray with persistence, pray with obnoxious impertinence. Don't pray these mealy-mouthed prayers. Oh, Lord, you know, whatever your will to be done. No, he says, pray, pray specific, bold, audacious prayer. Heal her body. Restore their marriage. Redeem this conflict. Bind Satan in the name of Jesus. Heal the broken racial conflict in our land. Restore our city. 
we pray, pray bold prayers, believing that God hears our prayers and is able to answer. Ask boldly. You know, there was an amazing um, marketing campaign a few years ago by a little regional airline company called WestJet in the Northwest United States. And they did this really amazing campaign at Christmas time where this actually happened. People came to their gate to take a flight right before Christmas. And in the gate, there is a screen with a virtual Santa Claus. And you scanned your boarding pass and then Santa appeared and he asked you what you wanted for Christmas. And people were saying all these different things. One person, oh, little kid said, oh, I want a tablet. And another said, you know, I, I, I want a fishing pole. And uh, one guy said, I want socks and underwear. <laughs> and then, you know, another couple said, we want a big screen TV. And they were all doing it. And they thought it was just cute. You know, they thought they didn't think anything of it. Got on their flight, took off. What they did not know is that in the meantime, all of these WestJet employees were listening in and recording every single gift associated with every single person. And while they were in the air, they raced to the nearest Best Buy and Walmart and Target, and they bought each and everything that each person had requested. And then they wrapped the presents in this beautiful wrapping paper. And then when the people landed in their destination about two or three hours later, they went to the baggage claim and instead of their luggage coming down the track, one by one came these beautifully wrapped packages, each and every one with a specific person's name on it. And people were so confused. What is this? And they started opening them up and they, their tears began to, they couldn't believe. How could this be? It was astonishing. They couldn't believe it. And all I could think about was that poor sap who asked for the underwear. <laughs> and you, you can actually watch it on YouTube. Go this afternoon and look WestJet at the guy. You can see the guy. He's standing there in the bachelor's claim holding a pair of socks. And the guy next to him is holding a 62 inch. And... <laughs> And you know the guy is thinking, why didn't I ask for more? If only, if only I had asked. And this is what the father is saying to his friends. If only you had asked for more. If only, if you, you do not have because you do not ask, James 4, verse 2. If only you had prayed boldly, expectantly, not just settled for spiritual underwear, but believing that God hears your prayers and is able to answer. Do you believe that? Now, let me answer an objection. I am certain that some of you are asking. Some of you may be thinking right now, hey, I did ask boldly, and nothing happened. You know, recently I sat with some folks in our church who've gone through a whole lot and have some very serious health needs, and they are, pray they are faithful people. They are praying fervently. Nothing's happening. In some ways, it's only getting worse. We prayed for Jared, and he was healed. We've prayed for about four or five other people in the same way who have died. What do you say to that, Mr. James? Well, this is why the last point was so important. Because when our posture in prayer is humility, we can pray boldly, yet at the same time we surrender ourselves in humility to God's good purposes, knowing that his purposes we often cannot understand. Remember, my dear sister and brother, that God's mission for your life is not to fix your problems, but is to heal your soul and to make you new. And sometimes it takes not answering your prayers for that transformation to happen. As much as it pains me to say, we can't agree with Garth Brooks, that so we can't thank God for unanswered prayer. And true prayer is a combination of both boldness and humility. Boldness, knowing you have God's ear, knowing he invites you through Jesus 
to pray bold, audacious prayers. Yet humility, knowing that even if you are convinced that you need something, that you cannot possibly see the big picture. In the end, you surrender yourself to God's purposes. I love what Tim Keller says about prayer. He says, God will either give you what you ask for or give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will either give you what you asked for or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. He loves you. He loves you. Even when he does not abide by our wishes, his purpose is always love. So so ask. Don't be afraid to ask for the wrong thing. Of course you will. You're a kid. But he is good, and he will answer in his wisdom. So third family, let's be a church that prays boldly. You know, can I just be honest with, with us as a church family for a second? I love you all so much, and I have learned so much from you and grown so much from you. I see so many amazing strengths in you. You're a remarkable group of people. And yet, one of the things that we are not strong in is being a people who pray. And, and I'm not just saying that it's our problem as a church. Really, any church that I've known that is full of educated and successful and affluent people struggle with prayer. It's, I'm always amazed when I go to places in the third world, when I go to churches that are in communities of poverty or communities of great brokenness, and to see how so many of these communities are fervent, consistent, and faithful in collective prayer. Why? Because they are not under the illusion that they can actually handle life on their own. And so they cry out to God in need. Yet, people with resources forget this. We too easily rely on our abilities, our education, our wealth, and our power. And yet our prayerlessness is a form of pride. We believe that we can do it with our planning and our strategizing. We can make it happen. But yes, listen, friends, we can't. Our prosperity deceives us. We've got a lot of big things coming down the pike this year for our church family in the next few years. And I would invoke us to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and boldly pray for his help. Let's be a people who pray desperately, who pray for each other who pray for our parish groups, who pray for our marriages, who pray for our children, who pray for those who are sick among us, who pray for our city, who pray for our neighbors and our neighborhoods, who pray for our church and pray for revival and renewal and reconciliation, who pray for our nation and pray for our world. Prayer shapes reality. Do you believe it? So here's where we've gone today. We basically said this, is that true faith is transformational and transformation happens through relationship. And relationship works itself out through prayer. And prayer happens everywhere. Every place is a place for prayer. Prayer happens when we come with honest humility before the God, come as we are, letting him work his change in us, and he invites us to ask bold requests of him because prayer changes things. Now, as I close, I have one last secret P for you. Okay, talked about place, posture, power. One last thing, the person who enables our prayer. Look at verse 15 with me just one second. It says this, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, this is one of the great misused passages in the Bible. Many people have used this to say that if you pray fervently for something and God doesn't grant it, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith, you let doubt creep in, or someone who prayed for you must have not had a full amount of faith. Let me say that that is rubbish. And it is a terrible destruction that has been caused to people who would believe such things. I am convinced that that is not what James is saying here. 
because I know that that is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, you may know that wonderful story in Mark 9 where the father brings his son to be healed and Jesus asks him if he believes in faith that Jesus can heal and the man says, sort of, I believe, help my unbelief. He says, I'm a mixed bag, I'm full of faith, I'm full of doubt. I'm full of belief, I'm full of unbelief. I I, I think I believe, but I also know that I don't. And Jesus says, perfect. Your son is healed. And what that shows is that when it comes to prayer, it's never about the amount of faith. It's about the person that your faith is in. The prayer of faith that James is speaking about is not the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith. It's the person of Jesus, the one who is faithful the one who has lived and died for us, the one who brings our prayers into heaven. What, I want you to hear me, especially if you're not a Christian today, I want you to hear me on this. What makes a person a Christian is not the strength of their faith. What makes a person a Christian is who they put their faith in. And that is Jesus who is strong and mighty to save. And I don't care how small your faith is. It might be small as a mustard seed. It might be even smaller. But as long as that tiny grain of faith is on the person of Jesus who is mighty to save, what else do you need? What else do you need? And that is why we can bring our authentic selves. That is why we can be a mess before the Father. That is why we can be honest. That is why we can behave like children. That's why we can bring all our sin. That's why we can pray bold prayers with all of our doubt mixed in. Why? Because it's not our faith. It's the faithfulness of our Savior who brings us into the Father's presence. In some ways, prayer is an exact replica of the gospel. Because prayer, you could say, is that the Father receives us as we are and gives us the gift of help by grace. And the gospel is the Father receives us as we are and gives us the gift of salvation by grace. So the more you know and believe this truth of the gospel, the more you know and trust and walk in the faithfulness of Jesus, the more you are completely dependent on his mercy, the more you will pray. It is not the strength of your faith, it is the faithfulness of Jesus, our intercessor in heaven. Get to know him. Start with him and you will pray. So let's pray. We thank you, oh God, for your love for us, messy people. Thank you that you receive us as we are, and then you challenge us to become what we could be, and then you invite us to pray boldly like children, and you promise to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I don't think that it would be a good thing for us to just sort of tie up this series and say to James, hey man, great letter, thanks a lot, learned a lot. What's next? Uh, James is the person who said, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And so we just wanna spend a few moments here at the end of this 12-week series to reflect on something that you were convicted about from the Holy Spirit. And if you turn to the next page, page 12 and 13, even if this is your first time here, we summarize the entire series here so that you can see what every single section was about. And I just wanna invite you Spend the next few moments asking God, what is one thing you're calling me to do in response to this letter? It could be that you want to finally work on your anger. It could be that you want to work to become a more generous person. It could be you want to commit to a discipline of prayer in scripture. It could be that you want to work on your truth telling or your gossip. Whatever it might be, what is one thing you will commit to do in response to the word of God and who will you share this commitment with. Let's just spend a few moments reflecting on that.